0: I could have written a more conventional, authoritative, serious nonfiction book where I wasn't in it and I just marshaled yet another argument about why we need to really act now Mm -hmm. in the face of the climate crisis. I didn't have it in me. I'd lost faith in that kind of writing. Maybe I'll return to it one day, but I I kind of wrote myself back into speech. (laughs) I mean, I needed to try something new.
1: With thanks to Baileys, this is the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast, celebrating women's writing, sharing our creativity, our voices and our perspectives, all while championing the very best fiction written by women around the world. I'm Vic Hope and I'm your host for season six of Bookshelfy, the podcast that asks women with lives as inspiring as any fiction to share the five books by women that have shaped them join me and my incredible guests as we talk about the books you'll be adding to your 2023 reading list. Naomi Klein is an award-winning journalist and a New York Times best-selling author with nine critically acclaimed books which include The Shock Doctrine and This Changes Everything. In 2018 she was named the inaugural Gloria Steinem endowed chair at Rutgers University and is now honorary professor of media and climate at Rutgers. In September 2021, she joined the University of British Columbia as UBC Professor of Climate Justice and co-director of the Centre for Climate. Her newest book, Doppelganger, is part memoir teamed with political reportage and cultural analysis in which Naomi grapples with her own doppelganger. Welcome to the podcast,
0: Naomi. Thank you for having me.
1: I'd, I'd love to know how you balance reading for pleasure with the amount of reading I'm sure you have to do.
0: In support of your work for research, mm-hmm. I mean, I know that I'm relaxing when I'm reading mm-hmm. fiction. When I'm when I'm reading for pleasure, I read a lot in the summer. But I also teach I teach university students at University of British Columbia, and I try to assign a little bit of fiction. I teach a course on climate feelings, mm-hmm. or we call it ecological affect. But I always say in the first class that that's just a fancy word for climate feelings, um, and. We read fiction in that, so so it is a little bit integrated with the research that I do. Yeah. Do you Mm -hmm. assign the fiction so that you get to read a bit of fiction yourself? But I think we all need art to balance the hard facts. I think it's medicine. Yeah. So yeah, it's for all of us. And what sort of fiction? What sort of books do you gravitate towards when you Mm. want when you want to enjoy? Huh. Like I don't have sort of like a. Trashy fiction habit. I maybe, but I think maybe I should. I think I would enjoy it. I, when I want to really turn my brain off, I watch television. <laughs> I watch streaming TV. So I like good fiction. I mean, I look to writers who are engaging with some of the themes that I am engaged with, but in a different register, like Richard Powers. Kim Stanley Robinson, Bar- Barbara King Solver, um, Octavia Butler, like, you know, I'm interested in sort of cli-fi mm-hmm. a little bit, ways in which people are engaging with a sort of c- complicated utopias and dystopias. I don't love dystopias, uh, but I also don't love like sunny utopias. I like complicated grapplings with a future in which we don't all incinerate. But mainly I'll just like if people I trust are passionate about a book then that's usually what i'll a read. A review. Mm-hmm.
1: I mean i i i like to to trust a good review. i would always mm-hmm. go on a recommendation over anything else. Yeah, but um yeah. it, it sort of sounds like when you're reaching for novels that perhaps provide this new perspective on something that might be based in reality or you were saying you know tend to I mean a, i TV. read a lot
0: of fiction for the for for my most recent book mm-hmm. for doppelganger um I read a lot of novels and short stories, and I think it nourishes yeah. the nonfiction to be able to draw on a variety of different registers and, and, yeah, so so it's not just an escape, it's a grounding as well. Like I think really giving yourself to a book, that's something I can only really do on holiday. And when a book really has me in its grips, I don't want to do anything else. Yeah. And I'm mad at everybody. Like, I, that's the way I felt when I was reading Demon Copperhead yeah. most recently. <laughs> I'm just like, this is now my job. I have to read this book. Um, and I'm not a fast reader. You know, I really envy people who are speed readers. But I, it, it takes time. And. I didn't want to do anything else. I get cranky with people who try to take me away from it. So you need to put that time aside. We were just saying before we start
1: recording how jealous we both are of anyone who <laughs> hasn't read Barbara Kingsolver's Demon yeah. Copperhead*. I and I become an, ev- an evangelist,
0: <laughs> yeah. you know, for, for books like that. I was like that with Overstory as well. Yeah, uh, <laughs> But that feeling
1: of of just being so engrossed and sort of wanting to carry on, wanting to turn the page wanting to get to the end but also being kind of annoyed when the end comes because it's over Mm -hmm. and i still want to be inside it it's actually one of the best feelings in the world
0: yeah yeah we're going to talk about some. it's like travel (laughs) yeah
1: what would you say the the comparisons between between that and travel are? how how does it it sort of rouse you in that way
0: i mean i think that really gifted fiction writers make you feel like you've been to a place you know i think about arundhati roy's kerala in God of Small Things, like, I've never been to Kerala, but there's a part of me that feels like I went there. And, and I've spent a little time in Appalachia, but not King Salver's Appalachia. And I think it's just, she so fully inhabits mm-hmm. other people's consciousness. And there's a transference that occurs, I, I think. Yeah. We're going to talk about the books that have taken you on mm. those journeys mm-hmm. to those
1: places. Yeah. Now, in your first book, Shelby book, Mm -hmm. is The Diary of a Young Girl by Mm -hmm. Anne Frank. One of the most famous accounts of living under the Nazi regime of World War II comes from the diary of a 13-year-old Jewish girl, Anne Frank. It describes both the joys and the torments of daily life, as well as the typical adolescent thoughts throughout two years spent in hiding with her family during the Nazi occupation of Holland. Can you remember when you read this?
0: I read it when I was in the fourth grade, I, so I was either eight or nine. Okay. Probably on, a little in between. Younger than I'm, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was part of, I, ha- I went through a phase when I started reading longer chapter books where I was, I maybe had an unhealthy obsession with a Holocaust stories. And I, I I remember just looking for stories about children who had hidden in the woods and like these stories of children hiding, like really, really, really captured my imagination in a way that may not, I mean, I was terrorizing myself a little bit. And I don't remember that many of the books by name, but I know I read a a few of them. I kind of binged it. And I remember going through my parents' bookshelf in the basement of our house in Montreal and and looking for more of these books. Um, But Anne Frank, that book was different. I think, I mean, she, I was younger than her, but I definitely identified with her, probably because Montreal girls were precocious. <laughs> um, so, I mean, and and the, but that feeling of, it's interesting because I didn't realize at the time that she seems to have known that she was not just writing for herself, that, that she was writing something that, that might be read by others, that it would be a testament, but the ability to capture that feeling of claustrophobia was so extraordinary. I mean, to, what a gifted writer. And also, I really remember the crush that she had. You know, She had a crush insane. on me. You
1: know. <laughs> I just remember thinking, ooh, I felt these things. Someone else has. And it must have been one of the first times I'd read a book where that resonated with me.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you know how old you were when you read probably it?
1: Probably younger than 13. Probably. Yeah. Probably like you,
0: around eight or nine as well. Mm-hmm. But I know that I was... In fourth grade, because in fifth grade, I started to keep a diary, and I, I I kept it because my family moved from Canada to Oxford, and I was very upset about it because I had a, you know a strong group of friends when I was fourth grade was like peak childhood for me. Everything was going right, pre-puberty, things are awesome, and then things started really going downhill after that. But I was really I really felt like wrenched from my friend group and. My dog. They wouldn't let me bring my dog. Your dog didn't come too. There was a rule at the time that if you brought a dog to the UK, you had to quarantine it for six months, and we were only going to be here for a year because right. it was my father's sabbatical year; he was doing research, and so we couldn't put Buffy, in the golden oh. retriever. <laughs> but were we you were you Buffy.
1: reunited with Buffy
0: when I got back? Okay. Yes, but it was still like yeah, you know when hard. you're when you're nine, yeah. the idea of not seeing your dog for a year was very upsetting. So. I ha- still have this diary from beginning school in fifth grade. Do you call it fifth grade? Fifth year?
1: Uh, so if it, if it was age 10-ish, I guess Nine that would be ten. year, year the, six, year five or six probably. It was five. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah year five. So I had a, a diary that was like a squishy cover and an I, it had an ice cream, picture of an ice cream was and a little lock. That sort of, um, I feel <laughs> like I know it, was it that sort of... Almost like jelly Mm -hmm. feeling. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Yeah. Like squishy vinyl and like a little cheap broken gold lock. Mm. Anne addressed her diary to Kitty. And the first page of the diary says, This is where I'm going to keep my secrets. And I'm going to call it you, Kit, after Anne Frank's diary, Kitty. So. I read it before that. That's all I know. I don't know exactly when, but it was before, it was before we moved to Oxford.
1: And does it sort of depict the, the turmoil of being, like you said, wrenched from your, your friendship group, from your life?
0: It, it captured that, that, that loneliness, yeah. and it turned me into a, a mad diarist. You know, I, 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 after that, I was, it was off to the races. It definitely <laughs> turned me into a writer, and I filled many, many a journal, um, although I didn't fill that one. I didn't. I didn't keep it as religiously as I had pledged to on the first page.
1: <laughs> you said you were fascinated at quite a young age by um, these stories of the Second World War, particularly mm-hmm. children, particularly children who were
0: hiding. Do you know why? Why that might have been? I, I went to a Jewish day school in in Montreal, and there was a lot of Holocaust education in my grade school education. And I think I was just trying to make sense of it. You know, there, we would visit museums and there were teachers at our school who had numbers on their wrists, um, on, their, on their forearms, who had been in the camps, the older teachers. Mm-hmm. We had a substitute Yiddish teacher because te- in my school we learned Yiddish and Hebrew, French and English. We didn't learn much else <laughs> besides the languages because it was a lot. I mean, when I think of it now as a mother of an 11-year-old, I think... It was quite a lot to learn at a very young age. learning, like I remember going to, we went to a museum exhibition where there was like a pile of shoes, you know, and it was very graphic. Mm -hmm. And in my new book, Doppelganger, I quote somebody saying that some of this education was a kind of re-traumatization, that it wasn't like there wasn't, the idea was that we should be very afraid because people might come for us again. So I think that that's why I was reading these books because I was just trying to, to make sense of it. I mean, I I think we should teach children history, don't get me wrong, but I think that this, there was something about the way it entered my brain that Mm. was, I didn't know what to do with it. And now when I think about my own son, I'm a little bit more careful with when I introduce some really, really difficult ideas because kids are so sensitive. At the time of reading, um,
1: Anne Frank, did you feel something in you spark I don't know whether, you know, it's a a triggering. I remember for me it was um, reading To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee and I was Mm -hmm. quite young and
0: I remember all of a sudden like an activism was sparked. Do you remember being politicized? I was so shattered by it, but it was such a story of the, the worst and the best that humans are capable of, right, which is something that I think has stayed with me in all of my work where, you know, you see this whenever there are disasters, large-scale crises, you see kind of the worst predation and you also see people taking incredible risks for one another, right? And that's the story of that family is that they were hunted, as all Jews were under, you know, in Nazi-occupied territory, but they were also hidden by people who took risks to keep them alive um, and in the end weren't successful. And I think that was, you know, that's the other thing about that story is that we're so hardwired to expect happy endings and that, you know, the end of Anne Frank is not in the diary, but we know the the ending, which is that she, she died in Bergen-Belsen. And, you know, I think that was another reason why I just couldn't sort of stop looking was like, but aren't, isn't there supposed to be a happy ending? And there wasn't one, but yeah, I was very interested in the people that hid them and why they took those risks. Yeah. It's time now to talk about your
1: second bookshelfy book, mm-hmm. book um, which is a firm favourite of mine as oh, well. Really, House of the Spirits by Isabella Allende. Um, This mesmeric debut paints this incredibly rich portrait of the social and political upheavals of post-colonial Chile, blending magical realism and history. Set in an unnamed Latin American (laughs) country over three generations, The House of the Spirits is a magnificent epic of a proud and passionate family, secret loves, and violent
0: revolution. Why was this book so influential to you? Well, I read it. Uh, a few years after M Frank, when I was in high school. So I read it in 85 or 86. I was I was 15 or 16. And it just blew my mind because I'd never read any th- magical realism before. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, talk about travel. Oh I mean, my I felt like I was there. I loved the idea of the dead being so present, being characters in the book, right? And it sent me down a whole rabbit hole of like Marquez, and I wanted more, more, more. Um, I didn't want to read straight fiction after that. I wanted magic. Yeah. And um, I don't it could have coincided with a Ouija phase. we <laughs> will be now. It's fine. <laughs> now that I think about it. Um, but yeah, I had a little witchy thing going on yeah. as as a teen. But also, I had written a paper at around the same time, I had a wonderful English teacher um, at my high school. I was one of those sort of erratic students where I did very well in the courses that I cared about and just sort of ghosted the, the, the subjects that I didn't love. But I loved Mrs. Young, who gave us this interesting, like one of the options, we had three options to choose from for an essay. It was actually a history class, not an English class. One of the subjects was America, policeman to the world? Question mark. Okay. <laughs> and I went home and asked my older brother, who was very political, "What does this mean? Like, like, it, like, it, will this be the easiest topic <laughs> you know for me to do?" And he said, "Go to the library and look up Chile and Pinochet mm-hmm. and write about that." And so, you know, it, this is back in the olden days of you know library, like a uh, catalogs, like or the card and. And I remember, like, going to the librarian who, w- with with a few of the the cards that told me, like, nineteen seventy three, Time Magazine. You know, it was would have been September, October, uh, nineteen seventy three. And and they would go down to the basement and bring me the Time magazines. And and you know, no internet, obviously. And I was it 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 was quite shocking to me that there had in this coup. And you know, I read about the CIA involvement and all of that. And I wrote this essay, no, America should not be policemen to the world. And they should not have been complicit in um, destabilizing the the government of, of Salvador Allende and installing this brutal military dictatorship. So I was doing that, that paper, that nonfiction paper, w- which stuck with me and reading a whole lot of Latin American magical realism. And then, of course, In House of the Spirits, Allende is sort of one of the characters. And I sort of got that, Mm. that he was the candidate. I think it ignited a lifelong interest in that part of the world for me. And eventually I did. I lived in Argentina for a while and did a lot of research about the military dictatorship. And that ended up informing the work that I did for the Shock Doctrine. So, yeah, I really credit uh, Isabel Allende for, like, leading me down this whole road. Yeah, I just... You know, it's so funny when I think about that book. I just see color, color, color. You know, it's so rich. She's so sumptuous, mm-hmm. and yet the sociopolitical climate
1: against which she's writing these stories is often so um, harsh and stark. Yeah. But yeah. it's it, absolutely fascinating. I completely, completely relate. I remember reading. I think it was it was Marquez first. And just igniting this obsession with South America, and I too mm-hmm. also went to Argentina to live and work for a year because I was so fascinated. Me too. It.
0: This is getting weird, <laughs> and not <can you>? um, <laughs> I
1: get it. I mean, how do you, how do you think the books that you read change you as a writer? Right back from reading Anne Frank and then thinking, okay, mm-hmm. I'm going to write a diary. Like it, the impact seems to be quite just magic. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's so extraordinary. There are times when recently when I have just felt. Like, do words even matter anymore? Mm-hmm. They're being so distorted and twisted and nothing seems to change no matter how many books are written. But then you remember, like, there is this alchemy that we don't understand. So I, I we can't give up on them. <laughs> when you put
1: yourself into sort of the, the center of the book, like mm-hmm. like um, in your latest book, Doppelganger, which mm-hmm. is out now, does that change how you approach writing it, the, the research and, and the sort of sitting down, putting pen to paper. Mm.
0: Well, it, this latest book came out of this feeling of speechlessness during the pandemic, but also like a kind of a... I think I was despairing about the point of writing is the only way I can describe it, is that, you know, the writing and research, is, it's an act of faith. Like, you are, you are believing that by marshalling facts and making an argument and trying to be persuasive... That that is going to have some effect on the world. And I don't believe that books change the world. I believe that social movements change the world mm-hmm. and people do that. But I do believe that they can play a little role, that they can change minds, and that there's a kind of partnership that that takes place between between the written word, between ideas, and different forms of art as well. And because we don't really understand what causes people to suddenly be in the streets demanding justice, one one month and not the next it's 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 very very mysterious even for the people involved and so i think there was something about the isolation of the pandemic not having the usual ways that i know who i am my friendships my community and but it was also that in the early months of the pandemic i had some hopes that this was going to be a kind of a, a real shift that there was going to be a wake up and that was that had to do with the way the virus lit up our interconnections like you couldn't ignore the fact that we breathe the same air as each other we touch the same surfaces as each other and so you know we live in a culture that studiously unsees so many of the people who hold our world up and COVID was like a searchlight going you can't unsee you have to think about who is delivering your food, who's making your food, who's picking your food, who's caring for your parents, who is, and can they call in sick? Like, are they, they exist. And, and, you know, there was that sort of moment of like clapping for essential workers. And, and then there was the Black Lives Matter uprising in in May and, and through the summer. And then there was all this organizing that I was a part of, and that so many of us were a part of where we were thinking, okay, well, if we get rid of Trump, like how do we learn these lessons that we actually, we want to live in a world that doesn't treat people as sacrificial and we actually want time in nature and maybe we don't want to work quite so hard as we were before. And there were all these projects of kind of reimagining how we could live. Mm. And it was when things, just the grind of normal (laughs) returned. I don't know if you remember this, that essay by Arundhati Roy early in the pandemic where she said the pandemic is a portal Basically, she was saying, this is too big to not change yeah. us. We're going somewhere else. And we have a we have a choices to make about what we bring with us through the portal. She said, are we going to bring our hatreds? Are we going to bring our smoggy skies? Or are we going to travel more lightly, you know, and make some choices about what we're going to bring with us? And I think it was realizing like, oh, we're bringing all of it with us, yeah. <laughs> you know, that made me feel just really unsure about the kind of writing that I've done. So the book is more personal, but it's also more experimental. It's much more in the in the tone that that I speak with my friends. It's more honest. It's more it's more self critical. It's a doppelganger book. So in the end, it's always about looking in the mirror, as we know from doppelganger literature. But for me, like I didn't have a choice but to write this way. Like it was either that or not write. Like it wasn't like I, I I could have written a more conventional, authoritative. Serious nonfiction book where I wasn't in it, and I just marshaled yet another argument about why we need to really act now mm-hmm. in the face of the climate crisis. I didn't have it in me. I didn't, I'd lost faith in that kind of writing. Maybe I'll return to it one day, but I, I kind of wrote myself back into speech. <laughs> I mean, I needed to try something new. I, I, I started working with a writing teacher. I almost signed up for an online writing course, but somebody convinced me that I should get a private teacher. So I was just, I really went back to school, like to try to remember what I loved about writing to begin with. And it was amazing to just write for one person instead of lots of people. We did all kinds of reading and exercises. And out of that process came this idea of using my own doppelganger as a, as a literary tool to look at all the ways that we are doubling and doppelganging and mirroring (laughs) so yeah it's uh it's not like anything i've done before so i can't compare it to yeah it's an experiment and you did um, remember why you loved writing oh yeah i mean i had so much fun and yeah i i I rediscovered a sort of sense of play Mm. and it it stayed that way even through editing it was not a chore it was like my secret I didn't tell the other thing about this book is that I didn't it didn't tell anybody about it all my other books I made a proposal an outline I had an agent I had a publisher before I really started writing so then I was writing the book because I had a deadline and I'd get in a lot of trouble if I if I didn't but with doppelganger I was basically eight months pregnant before I told anyone that I had uh, written a book. But I mean, I, by which I mean I had written ten chapters, <laughs> um, and and I think it's because I wanted to have an out in case yeah. it was too personal, in case I didn't pull off or feel that I had pulled off this sort of experimental form. So it, I only wrote because I wanted to. So nobody was asking. Them. Nobody was asking me to do it. And as I say in the first sentence, several people cross, strongly cautioned against it. <laughs> <laughs> Bailey's is proudly supporting the Women's
1: Prize for Fiction by helping showcase incredible writing by remarkable women, celebrating their accomplishments and getting more of their books into the hands of more people. Bailey's is the perfect adult treat, whether shaken in a cocktail, over ice cream or paired with your favourite book. Check out baileys.com for our favourite Bailey's recipes. uncover your family story with Find My Past, the inaugural sponsor of the new Women's Prize for Nonfiction and the UK's leading family tree company. With a bank of more than 14 billion digitised records and exclusive access to some of the world's most renowned historical databases, Find My Past's technology allows you to connect to people both past and present and visualise your family story in more detail than ever before. Start your free trial with Find My Past today at findmypast.co.uk and and see what stories you can uncover. Naomi, your third bookshelfy book is The Dispossessed mm-hmm. by Ursula K. Le Guin. This is a 1974 anarchist utopian science fiction novel. It tells the story of Shevek, a brilliant scientist who is attempting to find a new theory of time, but there are those who are jealous of his work and will do anything to block him. So he leaves his homeland, hoping to find a place of more liberty and tolerance. Shavek soon finds himself being used as a pawn in a deadly political game. Tell us about this book. Why did you
0: choose it? So I was trying to think of books that were important to me in different chapters of my life. And this book I read in 2001, I think near the end of 2001. And my first book came out just at the cusp of the new millennium, like between 1999 and 2000, no logo. And then it was swept up in these social movements, in these, you know, these mass movements, because the book sort of was about these pockets of emerging anti-corporate and anti-capitalist resistance, but it was not understood to be a movement yet. It was just like little pockets, mm-hmm. like reclaim the streets here in the UK or anti-sweatshop activism, things like that. And so the book had different chapters or people organizing their McDonald's and trying to bring in a union, things like that. But then when the book was at the printer, there were these huge protests against the World Trade Organization in Seattle. And then suddenly the movement that I said was going to happen was happening, not because I said it was happening. The book hadn't even come out yet, but because I had been reporting on it. And it turns out, yeah, there was a real growing youth-led resistance to the way corporations were sort of taking over all aspects of life and offering more precarious jobs and more environmental despoilation. So my life just went kind of like upside down and I went from being an unknown Canadian writer to being translated in all these countries and but really being swept up in the wave, of in the movement Momentum, which is sort of unlike, you know, it, it's, it's hard to compare it to just like a book success, because you couldn't separate the book from this broader movement and the way it got picked up. And so that was a movement very much of no. In Italy, they called it the no global movement. <laughs> um, and it was really like, it was a rejection of a certain kind of corporate globalization and a desire you know, to protect the local and the particular and the non-corporate, the public, the commons. But whenever i would do interviews i would always get this question well we know what you're against but what are you for like what is your vision of of the economy that is not like this and it, it, i think it's hard to imagine like from this vantage point of 2023 what it was like in 2000 2001 to critique corporate globalization like people thought it was really great <laughs> now everyone's just like done with capitalism although not really doing all that much about being done with it but there's sort of broad consensus that this system is really not serving the vast majority of people but then it was sort of heretical and so that was the attack on the movement was you 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 only have a no but you don't have a yes you don't have a vision of the world that you want so that's where my head was at. That's also why I moved to Argentina for a year, because we ended up making a documentary film about different kinds of utopian experiments in Argentina after their economy crashed right in this period. So there were factories that were taken over by their workers and turned into like anarcho-syndicalist yeah. <laughs> cooperatives. And so my, my husband and I have, made a documentary about that called The Take, about workers taking over their factories and turning them into co-ops. But there were all, all kinds of other experiments going on, sort of post-money trading networks and things like that. And around this time, I started reading The Dispossessed by <laughs> Ursula Le Guin, which is this amazing utopian science fiction, troubled utopia, not rosy utopia, complicated utopia. And it was interesting because Le Guin, who I love, said that she, she wrote it in the early 70s and she had been part of the anti-Vietnam War movement. And it had also been in the space of no, you know, no war. We don't want that. And wanting to, as she said, she wanted to study peace because she didn't just want to stay in the rejection of war. Like, what does it mean to, to create a peaceful society, a society that doesn't need to go to war all the time? And I had also heard from a lot of people in the movement that this was kind of their bible that this book laid out the world that they actually wanted and yeah it it had a big effect on me and I think utopian science fiction often has a big political more of a political impact mm-hmm. for better and worse than maybe people realize you know think about Ayn Rand's books <laughs> and their impact on Silicon Valley yeah you you talked
1: about the release of No Logo around the time, I mean, things had started changing even when it was um, mm-hmm. it just gone to press. It was just being printed mm-hmm. and being thrust into this world. Um, you just come from interviews today, a day full of interviews mm-hmm. for Doppelganger, which you were saying to me before is a little different. It's a little less combative because I know what it can be like sometimes in the media. And, yeah. um, it's a lot. How, how do you avoid becoming overwhelmed or cynical about... The world's given your line of work and also mm. how do you pr- protect your energy on a daily basis?
0: You know, I think there's an energy exchange when you're, when you're out in the world. And I haven't been on book tour since before the pandemic. So the last book tour I went on was 2019. And I love my life. I live in British Columbia and in a very... beautiful wild part part of part of the province you have to take a ferry boat and then it's an it's an hour from the ferry boat and i see seals and orcas occasionally occasionally i'll I'll see an orca (laughs) we feel very blessed when they visit but regularly i live amidst the bald eagles and the and the seals and and the sea lions and we have to be very careful with our trash or the or the or the bears will get it they know how to open car doors also <laughs> um, they've gotten into the car so <laughs> i'm not i don't feel in any way deprived but there is something about people <laughs> yeah <Open laughs> and <them. laughs> so and so it, it's been actually just amazing to be on this tour because it is it, yes the pre- the press can be amazing and you know i i try not to see it as press You know, when you're doing a quick little TV hit, okay, yeah, it's just sort of a performance. But the nice thing, I mean, podcasts are really nice because I've had a lot of, like, long conversations with really smart people where we're thinking together. And that's the thing about writing is, yes, you have to be alone to do it, but you have this cacophony of voices with you who are all the writers who have made you, who you're in conversation with, or you're there helping to shape the text, and then you bring the text into the world and then you know the the most fun part about doppelganger is that it has inspired i think because it is not one of those books that is claiming to have figured everything out that it you know it's not a thesis that is saying you know here is the thing and here is what we must do it's it's my personal vantage point through a very vertiginous period it's a first draft of a bit of a map of the way the world has been upended. So I've got the mirror world and I've got the Shadowlands and trying to understand the relationship between what we don't want to look at and all the ways in which we distract ourselves with looking at mirrors of ourselves on our phones Mm. and creating fantastical stories in conspiracy land and then feeling superior because we don't believe those conspiracy theories because we're the the people who are focused on reality, except are we really focused on reality? (laughs) Because there's a lot that is really hard for everybody to look at because we're all enmeshed in these systems. So I think because it's so, it is subjective, it's more personal, it's more eccentric to use one's doppelganger as a sort of a lens to look at all of this, it's inspired all of this amazing writing. Like it's not just reviews, like people have written more examples, like somebody who interviewed me for Conspirituality, which is a podcast that really helped me while I was writing this, it looks at the intersection of the worlds of wellness and yoga and conspiracy Mm -hmm. and how a lot of people are tipping over. Matthew Remsky is somebody who I know from the yoga world. I met him on a yoga retreat a long time ago. He's a yoga teacher, former yoga teacher. But he interviewed me for conspirituality and he was like, I've made fifty pages of notes. And it's like, that is so cool that writing does that. Like that you writing makes somebody else just makes all their synapses fire and write all kinds of cool things. So it is magic, the way we all help each other make sense of this of this wild world. Yeah. <laughs> more more thinking more listening i think i
1: was we just saying before i logged into twitter now called x and what i noticed is everyone's sort of just shouting at each other and not listening whereas yeah. if we can encourage um one another to to just to just stop for a second okay now let's go yeah it, it, it's,
0: a, it's a different oh no way no, no you're not supposed to think <laughs> on twitter no um No, it's it's a state of pure reactivity. You're in fight or flight when you're on when you're on that platform. And all you're thinking is like, not what did you say? But what should I I say say, about what you said? You know, (laughs) it's the meme. it's the everything is refracted through you. It's not a good thing that they have created for us and that we have helped them create. (laughs) (laughs) We touched earlier on a writer who is just exquisite in every way and
1: who's work has made us think, um, has, I feel like, incited change. Um, And she's the author of your fourth book today, which is Flight Behaviour, and it is, of course, Barbara Kingsolver. A Women's Prize for Fiction winner, Flight Behaviour takes on one of the most contentious subjects of our time, of course, climate change. With a deft and versatile empathy, Kingsolver dissects the motives that drive denial and belief in a precarious world. Talk to me about why you picked
0: This book in particular, but Mm. I know you're you're a fan of Barbara Kingsolver in general. Yeah, I really am. And I could have easily picked *Demon Copperhead*, but I thought probably your listeners had, because she won the prize this year, would probably have been having all kinds of *Demon Copperhead* um, (laughs) book clubs and so on. But *Flight Behavior* that's an example of, I guess, how sometimes I use fiction as a companion to my nonfiction. So when I was writing my first book about climate change, *This Changes Everything*. I read Flight Behavior, and I really do believe it is one of the best books about climate change, period, not, not just fiction, just nonfiction as well, because that's one of the things that Barbara does so well is you know, she doesn't hide the fact that she has something of an agenda with these books, and, and it doesn't come at the expense of story and these incredible characters but she puts her ideas in their mouths. You know, there's an incredible scientist in, in flight behavior who is just could be speaking on behalf of every pissed off scientist <laughs> everywhere. Where He just goes on this incredible rant um, with a sort of, let, let's just say like a little bit of a ditzy local news reporter who is feeding some climate change denial his way and he's having none of it. But the other thing that that made me want to choose flight behavior is that, you know, Devin Copperhead is... King Solver has described it as wanting to write the great Appalachian novel. And and flight behavior, I think, gets short shrift as a great Appalachian novel. And this has been a real passion of hers is to insist on the humanity of people who live in this part of the world who are really kind of, you know, one of the last acceptable groups to just openly mock mm. and um you know, are they just the butt of endless jokes and just the, you know, just the figure of the kind of the redneck, the hillbilly, and she's their avenging angel. You know, I mean, this is the thing. It's flight behavior. When I finished it, I'm like, this is a book about climate change, but it's also about red states and blue states and the way kind of coastal elites, for lack of a better phrase, like really do not understand these places that they are so prone to dismiss as the deplorables and, And so the main character in Flight Behavior is Delrobia Turnbow. She's in an unhappy marriage, is not appreciated, is quite brilliant, and is off to have an illicit rendezvous. And on her way to meet her would-be lover, she comes across this incredible sight of just a hilltop covered in orange, monarch butterflies and that scene is like one of the great Mm. scenes and it's also about uncanniness because it's both exquisitely beautiful and wrong Mm -hmm. right it's the uncanniness of of our world right where you know freud called the uncanny the species of frightening in which the familiar becomes strange right monarch butterflies don't belong that's not their migration route but anyway I, i love the novel i love king solver unsheltered which she wrote between demon copperhead and flight behavior is also an incredible novel about the climate crisis and really the, the dissolution of our shared home, told through an actual building that is falling apart—a home. You said earlier
1: that although a book can't incite change, it's everything mm. that goes around it. it was Barbara yeah. Kingsolver a driving force in sort of changing your view on how authors can
0: use their voices to drive change? I just love how unabashed she is about the fact that she. There's such a condescension towards like political art where this idea that you can't be a great artist if you actually care passionately about the world. And I love that King Solver just has no time for that whatsoever. She doesn't hide the fact that she cares passionately about the climate crisis. You know, in the acknowledgments for flight behavior, she thanks 350.org. And, you know, of course she cares. Of course we should all care. And I'm very inspired by the way she just has charted her own path. She's a great companion. Is there anything,
1: a key thing, let's say, that we could be doing, each of us, that collectively when it comes to us coming together, our voices working Mm -hmm. together, that we could be doing collectively to be better, to advance humanity?
0: That's the big question. After this very long and winding journey of trying to sort out like how much I should care about the fact that my identity is really it's out of control in the sense that like if you have a doppelganger it means that you could try to perfect yourself as much as you want you you can perfect your brand you can do the perfect filter on your photographs you can optimize you can you know you can get the tone just right but if there's somebody out there who like a big part of the world thinks is you and they're doing things you never would do then like I took that as a message to just take yourself less seriously (laughs) and I think in general I don't think we will come together as individuals or as groups of individuals, you know, reaching across often difficult divides unless we really believe that it is worth it, you know. And, and I think that that means that there has to be a clear horizon that we're working towards. I think there's been, a, there's been a lot of excavation. There's been a lot of difficult looking back. And we have to do that. Like, we need truer narratives of where we live and how we came to be, especially colonial nations mm-hmm. and settler colonial nations. But I increasingly feel, and this is why I included a little utopian fiction, is that if we don't have a horizon that we're moving towards, and if everybody can't see themselves in that horizon that we're moving towards, then I don't think we will do that hard work of coming together. Because people are hard, right? <laughs> and, and, and there's a lot of difficult... There's so many reasons to fracture. There's so many reasons to just be done with it, to just be frustrated with each other. But I think if there is, if we understand what we're moving towards, we, we might we might do that hard work well, and well, get over ourselves a tiny bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not a true word spoken. Well, we're moving towards your fifth mm.
1: and final book that you've brought to the podcast today, mm-hmm. Naomi, which is Her Body and Other Parties by Carmen Maria Machado. This collection of short stories from 2017 blur the boundaries between magical realism, science fiction, and horror. In this electric and provocative debut, Machado bends genre to shape startling narratives that map the realities of women's lives and the violence visited upon their bodies. Is there one story in particular in here that really caught you? Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, this, the whole collection is, is incredible. I wanted to talk about eight bites yeah. because for Doppelganger, I w- did a deep dive into the 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 history of the the figure of the Doppelganger, which is so persistent in in literature, you know, back to mythology, the figure of the twin, you know the the shadow self. And you know, I watched a lot of Doppelganger films, everything from the great Dictator to Denis Villeneuve's enemy um. You know, even Parent Trap, starring a young Lindsay Lohan. If I can call it research, I'll just watch absolutely (laughs) anything. Um, But I was frustrated in my deep dive into doppelganger uh, literature that there are some women who have written doppelganger novels, but it is a very male genre. Mm. And I think in part because, it, you know, the doppelganger is the threat to the ego, right? So... There's Dostoevsky, there's Edgar Allan Poe, there's a lot of Philip Roth, but I wanted to find more women's voices who thinking about doubling. And, you know, Le Guin does have a really interesting doppelganger in Wizard of Earthsea, Ged, but I found Machado's story, Eight Bites, to be so useful. It's a very strange story. It's a doppelganger story, but it also gets to something really, really key that I was trying to understand about the weirdness of now, the wildness of now, which is like how a sector of the wellness world, the sort of new age yoga world that I've had big yoga phases. I know Mm. a lot of folks who kind of crossed over and are suddenly Spouting QAnon and talking about their bodily autonomy not to get vaccinated. And if people have compromised immune system, that's their problem. And, you know, maybe this is sort of a Darwinism at work and this is a culling that needs to happen. I mean, I've heard people say this glowing Instagram influencers mm-hmm. who, you know, you would be surprised to hear it from. So I was trying to make sense of this. And somebody referred me to this story, Eight Bites, as a way to sort of understand a kind of a body fascism that can set in. And so the premise of Eight Bites is the main character is very unhappy with her body. And she feels that it's too heavy. She's angry at it. Um, It's not fitting into conventional norms around thinness. And so she has bariatric surgery. She's very happy because her appetite is suppressed and she loses a lot of the weight, but then she becomes haunted by a figure, sort of a shadow figure, a kind of a doppelganger that she first thinks is a ghost, and then it turns out to be the hundred pounds of fat that she shed that has become a fat golem that will not leave her. And the story ends with her beating this doppelganger with terrifying violence Mm -hmm. and it gets at this and there's also a a character in the story who is the her daughter who also has a similar body, body type and she's very angry that her mother has changed in this way and she says well do you hate my body because my body's the same as your body was and you wanted to you know cut that body in half so what do you hate mine and it's getting at this kind of exercise is great so I'm not saying that there are, that, that that all of wellness engages in in this kind of hatred but there is a way in which this obsession with the idealized form can it, it creates a double where you're reaching for this idealized version of you and if there's enough reps if there's enough discipline you'll reach that that double that idealized double but then what happens to the you that was and it seems like Machado is saying like You can't reach for that idealized form without, in some ways, hating Mm. the other one. And that hatred isn't just of the other you or the you that you lost. It can also bleed into other people who are not seen as perfect in that way. And honestly, I think it goes a long way towards explaining some of the strange happenings that we've seen in the COVID years in the wellness world. Why do you think we still need to protect and champion
1: women's voices mm-hmm. and women's representations and women's rights. You said before, you know, a lot of those doppelganger pieces of literature that you've you've read have been from that male perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, why was seeing the female perspective so
0: important? The, there's this history around doppelgangers where it's the must kill, must stab, must be the last me standing the in literature, standing. you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and you know, you think about Oscar Wilde's A Portrait of Dorian Gray, right? And you stab the portrait mm-hmm. and then they both die. Or like uh, Edgar Allan Poe's William Wilson, it's the same thing. You confront your double who's threatening your identity and then you both die. And when women write about doubles, it is does seem to be different. There does, you know, often seem to be much more of a grappling with that underlying impulse of like, why... Why are we trying? Why are we putting so much on the self? So, you know, I don't think we can generalize that all women are, you know, challenging the ego. And certainly some women, including women writers, are probably pretty ego-driven. But I do think we need that that different perspective. And looking forward, what can readers expect from you next? <laughs> um I want to try some other forms. That was the big lesson for me. And, and going back to sc- school during COVID and trying some other writing styles is that actually it's never too late to try no. a new form. <laughs> <laughs> um, and if you're bored by your old form, try a new one. Do that, we'll that online see. course. <laughs> exactly.
1: Like if you had to choose one book from your list that you brought oh. today as a favorite,
0: which would it be and why? Oh boy. I think I'd have to bring King Kingsolver. But if I bring Demon Copper, <laughs> I'm cheating.
1: You know what? It's not cheating because the reason you gave it made sense. But we're also we're not sick of talking about Demon Copper, mm. so you can bring it.
0: Okay, thank you. <laughs> I, I want to read rules. it it's again. Fine. I want to read it. I want to read it three three more times.
1: Well, if we keep feeling jealous of anyone we see reading it, yeah. I think it's a sign. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's been such an absolute pleasure to, to talk to you today. I know you've had a really long day full of interviews. I hope this was a nice tonic at the end it. Was of it was amazing. Thank you, Vic. This was such a pleasure. I'm Vic Hope and you've been listening to the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Baileys and produced by Birdline Media. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time.